So traditionally, Ash Wednesday celebrates two things, or perhaps celebrates is the wrong word. Uh, perhaps remembers would be a better word. On Ash Wednesday, we remember two things. We remember dust and we remember sin. And I want to spend just a few minutes looking at what the Bible has to say on those two subjects. So firstly, dust. As I said, in a traditional Anglican service, at one point in the service, the priest invites the congregation members to come forward, and he makes the sign of the cross on their foreheads with ash, and he speaks the words that God first spoke to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, after they had sinned and fallen. God said to them, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. I heard about a little girl who heard this passage being read aloud in church one morning, and after the service, her mom was cooking in the kitchen, and this little girl came running in and said, Mommy, Mommy, there's a whole lot of someone under my bed who is either coming or going. (laughs) So two things. Firstly, we are dust. I've just finished reading Bill Bryson's recent book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants. And he begins the book by speaking about something that we all learned in high school, and that is that the things that go into making up our bodies, the carbon and the magnesium and the water and the oxygen, can all be found in a pile of dirt and can be bought for just a few rands. Although he says that actually the latest and most comprehensive estimate for the full cost of building a new human being would be a very precise 96,546 pounds and 79 pence, multiplied by 20. Labor and VAT, of course, would boost costs further. You would probably be lucky to get a take-home human being for much under 200,000 pounds. Not a massive fortune, all things considered, but clearly not the meager few dollars that my junior high school teacher suggested. Then he says this, But of course it hardly really matters. No matter what you pay or how carefully you assemble the materials, you are not going to create a human being. You could gather together all the brainiest people who are alive now or have ever lived and endow them with the complete sum of human knowledge and they could not between them make a single living cell, never mind a complete human. Let me read an extract from chapter 1 that explains a little bit why. He says, We pass our existence within this warm wobble of flesh and yet take it almost entirely for granted. How many among us know even roughly where the spleen is, or what it does, or the difference between tendons and ligaments, or what the lymph nodes are up to? How many times a day do you suppose you blink? 500? 1,000? You've no idea, of course. Well, you blink 14,000 times a day, so many times that your eyes are actually shut for 23 minutes of every waking day. Yet you never have to think about it. Because every second of every day, your body undertakes a literally unquantifiable number of tasks without requiring an instant of your attention. In the second or so since you started the sentence, your body has made a million red blood cells. They are already speeding around you, coursing through your veins, keeping you alive. Each of those cells will rattle around you for about 150,000 times, repeatedly delivering oxygen to your cells, 
and then battered and useless will present itself to other cells to be quietly killed off for the greater good of you. Altogether, it takes seven billion, billion, billion atoms to make you. No one can say why those seven billion, billion, billion atoms have such an urgent desire to be you. They are mindless particles, after all, without a single thought or notion between them. Yet somehow, for the length of your existence, they will build and maintain all the countless systems and structures necessary to keep you humming, to make you, you, to let you enjoy the rare and supremely agreeable condition known as life. That's a much bigger job than you realize. Unpacked, you are positively enormous. Your lungs, smoothed out, would cover a tennis court, and the airways within them would stretch from London to Moscow. The length of all your blood vessels would take you two and a half times around the earth. The most remarkable part of all is your DNA. You have a meter of it packed into every cell, scrunched into the nucleus, a space that we may reasonably call infinitesimal. And the reason that a meter of DNA can fit into a cell nucleus is that it is exquisitely thin. You would need 20 billion strands of DNA laid side by side to make the width of the finest human hair. You have so many cells, approximately 37.2 trillion of them, that if you formed all your DNA into a single strand, it would stretch 10 billion miles to beyond Pluto. Think of it. There is enough of you to leave the solar system. You are, in the most literal sense, cosmic. What does that mean to us tonight? Well, firstly, a proper understanding that we are just dust will lead us to worship. When we catch a glimpse through anatomy or physiology or biology or astronomy of how small we are and how big God is, it leads us to genuine worship. Psalm 139, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, all that DNA. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Number two, a proper understanding of the fact that we are dust leads to what John Ortberg calls appropriate smallness or humility. In Colossians 1, Paul says, For in him, that is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You don't call a God like that into your life to come and be your assistant. You don't come into his presence to offer him your advice. You fall at his feet, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And thirdly, a proper understanding of the fact that we are just dust leads us to offer what we call our lives back to God. We read a moment ago that all things have been created through him and for him. God created you for himself, 
There is no other purpose to your life. Our bodies, our lives, our very selves were created by God and for God. And if I want to live a life of purpose and meaning, it comes about by me surrendering all of what I call myself, which is really the self that he has given me, back to him. Surrender. So we are dust, but secondly, we also return to dust. We use the words of Genesis 3 in our funeral services, that as the coffin is being lowered into the ground or as it's about to enter the crematorium, the minister says, earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. One of these days, you and I are going to die. We don't like thinking about it. I heard about an insurance salesman who said whenever he spoke to people about policies, they would always say, well, if I die. He said even 85-year-olds were saying, if I die. I heard about another insurance salesman who turned that around and said, well, take the policy, and if you wake up tomorrow morning, give me a call. <laughs> we don't like to think about death and dying, but actually thinking about death can help us live life. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes had to say in chapter 9. He says, Go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it's now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white. And always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this perplexing life that God has given you under the sun. All your days. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. The psalmist says the same thing in Psalm 90, where he says, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now some Christians say, but that's the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament tells us a lot more about what happens after death. We know about the resurrection of Jesus. We know that believers go to heaven. And yes, that's true. But you need to hold that against the Old Testament perspective because it's an important perspective. Psychologists have pointed out that people who've experienced near-death experiences, in other words, who've been involved in a horrific car accident or perhaps have had a brush with cancer, they've come so close to death and then they've overcome it suddenly live lives of purpose and meaning and hold those closest to them even closer because they understand the goodness of life. In fact, I heard about a young girl called Kathy. She was a nurse and she had kidney problems, had kidney failure, was about to die and then had a kidney transplant. And she said this after the experience. She said, I know, had I remained my first Kathy, the Kathy before the operation, Kathy before the suffering, I know that I would have played away my whole life and I would never have known what the real joy of living was all about. I had to face death eyeball to eyeball before I could live. I had to die in order to live. Another couple of applications then. Thinking about death, my death, helps me to organize my priorities. I know that often after I've conducted a funeral, I'll go back home and I'll hold Michelle a little bit closer and I'll hold my children a little bit closer. And it always surprises me that after a few days I forget about it all over again. But no, we're to think about priorities, what really matters in life. 
Remembering that we're just dust helps us to do that. Secondly, remembering that we're going to return to death helps us with our choices. What things are valuable? What things will last? What things have significance? And thirdly, and most importantly, remembering that we return to dust helps me to choose for God. Not simply so that I can be with God when I die one day, but in order for him to lead me and direct me and guide me right now. The writer of Ecclesiastes ends the book by saying, remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. But the second theme that an Ash Wednesday remembers is sin, which was where our main focus in our worship service uh, lay. The word sin has just about dropped out of our society's vocabulary. Um, when last did you hear a conversation about sin around a braai? Except in a positive sense. Uh, chocolate or dessert is sinful. That's the way our world thinks about sin. Sin is simply a bit of naughtiness on the side. And, and many people, perhaps ourselves included, don't feel that we are sinners. One writer says, we know what really wicked people are like. We see them in the papers every day, and we're not like that. God must find us, in comparison, quite endearing. But the Bible is a mirror that tells us the truth about ourselves. I might say to myself, well, I'm better than Hitler, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm better than my neighbor. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all in trouble. The Bible puts it two ways. First of all, the Bible refers to us as being sinners. Not just that we commit sin, but that we have a natural inclination or bent towards evil. If you've got small children, you know all about this. You don't have to teach children to be naughty. It comes naturally. I think I told you before about a friend of mine who one morning was shaving and his son was watching him, little eight-year-old. When my friend had finished with his razor, he put it down and he said to his boy, don't touch that, it's sharp. A little while later, he heard the shriek and the little boy running down the corridor, blood dripping from his chin. My friend grabbed him and held a face cloth to him and said, what happened? And his son said, I tripped and I fell in the corridor. My friend dabbed the blood away and saw that this was a neat double-edged cut from a double-edged razor. And he said it was, it was very disturbing, but he said it was amazing as well that he'd never sat his son down and said, listen, son, whenever you get into trouble, just lie. We don't teach our kids to be naughty. It comes naturally. But not only are we sinners, the Bible says, we also sin. We commit acts of sin. And I, have, I appreciated, if that's the right word, the confession we used a moment ago, because none of us could escape or wriggle out. It covered just about everything and a lot of things that perhaps we hadn't even thought about. We're sinners who commit specific acts of sin. The Apostle John tells us clearly, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And then thirdly, I think it's very important to understand that 
Sin isn't about breaking a rule. Rather, it's about a break, broken relationship, breaking God's heart. In the book of Genesis, we read in the time of Noah that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Sin is about a broken relationship. And I think that's very important because otherwise when we think about sin, we think of God as just being a, a rule maker, a lawmaker, a judge, a prosecuting attorney. But when we understand that sin is about a broken relationship, we see God as a God who is a lover, a friend, someone who wants to be intimate with us. We're sinners who sin. You see, it's only when we understand the problem that we can get help. Denial doesn't help us here. I read a joke recently where the man said, I've got a wonderful doctor. If you can't afford the operation, he'll touch up the x-rays. And that's sometimes what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to get out of here and go someplace where we will be told that actually we're nice people and good people. And all we need is maybe a bit more money or a bit more time or that people should be more understanding and kind to us. But that won't solve our problem. It's only when we admit our condition that God can work in us. That we're all sinners. There are two kinds of sinners. Sinners who deny and sinners who admit. Remember that story of the Pharisee and the tax collector a little earlier? So Barbara Brown Taylor writes in her book, Sin is our only hope because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step toward making it right again. And so the very best thing, in fact, I can do today is to come before God and agree with his verdict, to say in the words of Isaiah, woe to me, for I am a man or a woman of unclean lips, to say with Peter, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man, to use the words of Paul in the book of Romans, I know that nothing good lives in me, because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they're needy. What happens when we do this? Again, let me make three quick applications. Firstly, a proper understanding of my sin leads to joy. The more we see the depth of our sin, the more we realize the height of God's love. The full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. So remember the lady who Luke describes in Luke chapter 7. She comes into the room where Jesus is eating and she falls at his feet weeping, wetting his feet with her tears. She dries his feet with her hair and then she anoints them with expensive perfume. And Simon the Pharisee, who's hosting Jesus, thinks to himself, this man can't be a prophet, otherwise he would know what kind of woman who she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus says to him, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
But he who has been forgiven little, or thinks they have been forgiven little, loves little. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses this illustration. He says, imagine that you go away on holiday, and uh, when you get back, your friend who is house-sitting for you said, oh, while you were away, a, a bill came, so I paid it for you. You wouldn't know how to respond. You wouldn't know how happy to be until you found out the size of the bill. Was it just some extra postage, just a few rands? Was it perhaps a speeding fine, a few hundred rands? Or did your friend just settle your bond? Hundreds of thousands of rands. Until you know the size of the debt, you don't know whether to shake his hand and say thank you, or to fall to your knees and kiss his feet. And looking seriously at our sin enables us to see that Jesus has paid a massive debt for us. And when we realize that, gratitude wells up within our hearts. Our problem sometimes is that we've become immune to the size of our debt by over-familiarity. True repentance leads to joy and to real love. Second, a proper understanding of my sin leads to freedom. God knows the very worst about me. God knows everything about me, more than anyone else. And yet he loves me anyway. I experience freedom from guilt and shame. I experience freedom to serve God. As one writer puts it, we are free indeed. Free from any need to hide, to conceal or impress, to make excuses for ourselves, to demand our fair share. Free to love God with abandon. Free to love others without bargaining and conditions. And thirdly, a proper understanding of my sin will lead me to be far more merciful and understanding and forgiving to other people around me. When I understand the enormity of all I have been forgiven, it'll be far easier for me to forgive others for the relatively small things sometimes that they've done against me. Remember Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. The master says to his servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so just those two themes, <laughs> dust and sin, with all of their various applications to our own lives. As we heard from Trevor Hudson this morning, we are dust, but we are deeply loved dust. And although I am more sinful than I ever imagined, I am more loved than I ever dreamed.